Here's God's word. Let's listen together. Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now to the bunters, listen. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, or another way of understanding, let your gentleness be known to everyone. everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or a nice translation of that verse is, but in everything by prayer and plea with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Bunters, are you listening? Verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and I'm, uh, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, there was one last line. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, this is an opportunity for the children to go upstairs. Those that want to take, make use of this opportunity, please do so now. If you turn to the person on your right and you just told them who your best friend is, why did you do that? Perhaps that will be a good thing to just think about whilst the children make their way. Who's your best friend? You don't have to have just one. If you have two or three, that's great. Rachel, will you come and pick up the bunting?
to ask at this point a bit like lunchtime topics I don't know if there's anyone that's good at coming up with lunchtime topics but if you had a, had a, a little list of things we can chat about every now and again do let me know um, what a passage and I, I, I'm not sure if you've been uh, able to, to, to follow it uh, just now it's, it's kind of complicated because it, um, it's difficult to, to take a personal letter a letter that's written as personally as Paul wrote this letter take heartfelt personal letters and they divide it into three nice topics and then they preach it. I'm not so good at that sort of three-point thing and so it ends up being a bit of a mush. But I've got a bit of a handle on this passage and I hope I can show you the handle. And I hope after I've shown you this, I'll be able to it. Unfortunately, we didn't print the, the, the last part of, uh, of chapter three on your order of service, and that's not an oversight from, from Hintai. That's me that only discovered late last night that this is actually what needs to be on the order of service as well. So you will see, if you look at your order of service, you'll see chapter four, verse one, it starts with a therefore. And a therefore always asks, what is the therefore therefore? So we've got to go back up to see why is the therefore there? And so this is the bit that's just, above it and it, it'll be in the bible but I've, I've written it down here it's this brothers join in imitating me that's what paul writes join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us and then he contrasts it he says for many of whom i've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the, of the of the cross of christ their end is destruction their god is their belly and their glory their shame with their mindset on earthly things now back to the contrast, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. There's the key thing you need to hear. From it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the hope. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, and then he'll tell us something. He says, because because I wait for my Savior Jesus Christ who will transform not just my physical lowly body but the church as a lowly body into his glorious body because I'm waiting for that I want you therefore uh, to stand firm that's verse 1 of chapter 4 because we wait for the Savior that will transform our lowly bodies to be glorious stand firm can you look at verse 4 uh, verse 1 therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved stand firm let's just pause there for a moment Paul loves he absolutely loves the Philippians he's not writing an academic treaty for them he's not writing a, a, a doctrinal argument he is bursting with love for the church in Philippi. Can you see that in verse 1? He says, therefore, my brothers, 
It's brethren. It's the English, it's a, the Greek word that applies both to men and women. My brothers and sisters, whom I love, that's the first time he says, and long for. He loves them, he longs for them, he calls them his joy and crown. I mean, this is a love letter. He's thinking about the Philippians. He said, I love you. I long to be with you. You are my joy and you're my crown. Crown is, Stefan shouldn't hear this, but it's the Greek word Stephanos. Stephanos crown. And crown is what you receive as a reward for hard work. A crown. And Paul is saying, you're my crown. I've worked hard to establish the church. And you are my joy and, and you're my crown. He loves these guys. He absolutely loves them. And he goes on to then say, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. But because he loves them, he doesn't just tell them, oh, stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. He says, no, no, no. stand firm in the Lord, I'll tell you how, imitate me. Because it's a love letter. He's transferring something of his own character to his audience. And he says, imitate me. See how I live for Jesus? See how I endure everything up or down constantly? I just live with it because... You know what? I, I love Jesus. I wait for Jesus. And I see that you guys are waiting for Jesus with me. And in the meantime, whilst we're waiting, let's stand firm in this waiting. Let's stand firm in this waiting. Now, his love letter isn't done yet. And it's not so obvious in verse 2, because it seems like there is a dispute. He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He goes on to say, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's obvious, this is the only details we have, that there's a disagreement between Eodia and Syntyche. And Eodia and Syntyche are apparently both Christians, not just Christians, but he calls them fellow workers. They work alongside the rest of the church body, side by side, he says, not just side by side with the rest of the church body, but side by side with Paul himself in the work of the gospel. They're not ordained to a specific office, otherwise he would have said it. They are fulfilling the role of, uh, of the priesthood of every believer. These two sisters are Christians and they've fallen out. We say fallen out, they just don't agree about something. Now, we can pause there for a moment and imagine what it might be. Could it be that they're not agreeing at the time of their worship services on a Sunday morning? Do they think 9 o'clock is better than 11 or 10 is better than 9? Is this what they are not agreeing about? He's saying, I want you to agree in the Lord. But, but look at what he's not doing. He's not disciplining them. He's not being rude to them, is he? He addresses them personally. He doesn't say... Oh, there's some people in the church that doesn't agree. I think you should put them under discipline. I think you should rebuke them. That's not what he's doing. Look at the tender language. He speaks to them by name. And then he tells this unknown brother. We think it's Epaphroditus. But, but he says, yes, and I ask you also, true companion. I think it's Epaphroditus. Help these women. He's telling them to go help them. Come alongside them. To have a, have a chat with them. To see... If they can agree in the Lord, that's not the same as agree to disagree. <laughs> that is not just a ceasefire, but to agree in the Lord is to say, look, there is a higher priority over this relationship. It is we are waiting for the Lord Jesus 
that will appear from heaven. We're doing that together. We're doing it while standing firm. We're doing it while standing firm in bonds of love amongst each other. And we're not allowing disagreement that's often inflicted from outside the circumstances to draw us away. In other words, our, our fellowship is not just purely based on reason. A fellowship is not just based on reason. There is, a, there is a deep love for one another as we wait for the Lord together. Now, often churches get formed based on agreement on certain doctrinal topics. And so they get started because they agree on a particular distinctive and they get together. And the moment you fall outside of that agreement, well, then all of a sudden the relationship starts to fall apart. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you to agree in the big picture that we await for the Lord and that we're in Christ. Agree in the Lord. And he entreats them. It's passionate love language that he's speaking to them. Reminding them that this issue that they are disagreeing over does not mean that they are not saved. Why? Because he says, whose names are in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. Now, thankfully, we don't have that issue, but I just saw a video on Twitter yesterday or day before of, of, of anti-vaxxers that's standing at a school and shouting in America somewhere at people who are wearing masks, taking their children to school. And America, by all accounts, seems to be much more divided than COVID restrictions. Every form of COVID restriction that, that we have somehow managed to do here in, in, in the UK. And it's not just the country that's divided, it's the churches that are divided. Deeply divided about this thing. And, and, and Paul would say to them, I entreat you, vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, masks, maskers, anti-maskers, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And to help one another, those of you that are in leadership, help one another to agree in the Lord because our names are in the book of life. Let's agree and let's settle down. I took that example, but you can think of any other example that might drive division in the church from the outside. And you might think that the church is divided primarily because of our circumstances around us that's causing believers to disagree in the church. But, but Paul doesn't stop there because he gets to verse 7 and he speaks about hearts and minds that also need guarding. Because the division doesn't only come from the outside, it also comes from the inside in the church itself. Follow with me and you'll see that. Uh, we'll skip over the rejoice bit for the moment in verse 4. Uh, and, uh, and, and verse 6 talks about anxiousness. And then look at verse 7. And the peace of God and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will, uh, that surpasses all understanding. Now, my argument is simply this, that people on, in divisions often have great rational, reasonable arguments for holding their position. Uh, there could be great uh, arguments about uh, whether to use one cup at the Lord's Supper or many small cups. There can be great divisions about baptism. There could be great divisions about starting times for church. There could be great divisions of the type of music that the church uses. And both of them can be made with great rationality, with great clarity. So, so both parties will have reason on their side as they make their argument. Paul is saying, look, there is a peace, <laughs> there is a peace that surpasses this rationality, your clear rational argument that often drives black and white disputes. He says there is a peace that surpasses this, and this peace, well, he tells us where it's from. He says and the peace of God, or the peace from God, will guard over your hearts and minds. Uh, you see, we employ reason 
to defend ar uh, arguments that already exist in our hearts and minds. We have a preference for something, and then we go find information that bolsters our position, and then we make our impassioned rational plea over against another group that's doing the same thing. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be at loggerheads like that. Because there is the surpassing knowledge of knowing the peace that comes from God. And that's what he wants to give them. The peace that comes from God. Now this division that is driving the church at this time is terrible. Uh, it's causing not just dispute or disagreement, but it's causing anxiety. It's causing anxiety. Can you see verse 6? Do not be anxious about anything. Actually, the other way around. Do not be anxious about nothing. <laughs> but that sounds like strange English. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything... So he's starting to give the remedy. But, but let's just focus on the problem again. He's, he's saying that people are anxious. They're not experiencing the peace of God that surpasses all of this understanding. They need the peace because they don't have it. Uh, they, they need the peace that surpasses all understanding. And he's telling them where to get it. He says it is from God. And he says what the result will be. It will guard your hearts. It will guard your hearts. What's the point of the word guarding there? It means that there's a constant assault on your heart and mind to make you anxious. It's from the outside, yes, your circumstances, but it's also from the inside, your own passions, your own desires. And it's constantly assaulting your heart, attacking your heart. So you need a God. You need a God. And the God that is placed over the hearts of a Christian is the peace that comes from God. Where does that peace come from? That peace comes from Chapter 3, the very end. Await a Savior from heaven. By awaiting the Savior. To say, that's where my Savior is from. My Savior is not from the next political hero. My Savior is not in a new economic principle. My Savior is not in the lowering or hiring of interest rates. My Savior is not in medication. My, my Savior, I await my Savior in this body that is constantly declining. I'm awaiting my Savior from heaven, from God. And because your eyes are fixed there, your desires are fixed there, because your desires are fixed there, and you know it's true, it will happen, a great peace comes over your heart. A great peace that Paul's point is will lead to a kind of reasonableness. Can you see verse 5? Let your reasonableness, gentleness be known to everyone. Now we're coming into the solution a little bit. Paul is saying there is a problem. And that is that their unity is under fire because of divisions from the outside and desires on the inside. And he's suggesting the best defense against this, this, this unity that can result. He's suggesting that the answer, the best defense is, is love. And of that love, he is the example. Of that love he is example. He says, imitate me. And then he goes ahead and he shows them. And what does he show them? He, he, he shows them in verse 4. He says, brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. He, he's piling up love words, one on top of another. And he's saying, imitate me in this. And so there you need to ask yourself, if you're a Christian and a member of this church, how often are those words on your lip as you mention or talk to other believers in the church? I love you. I long to see you. It's Monday. It's another six days before I get to see a church on Sunday. Can we meet up for a cup of coffee? I love you. I long to see you. 
You are my joy. You know, this morning I got up and I thought, I'm alone in the world. And then I remembered that you are my fellow brother or sister in the Lord. You're my joy. And you're my crown. Perhaps I've had a, a, an impact on your spiritual walk. And I remember the times that we sat and spoke about difficulty that you had in your life. And how the gospel all of a sudden just became real between the two of us. It gives me great joy as I think about the times that we had in the gospel. Paul is saying, imitate me. This is how I speak, says Paul. Why didn't we speak like that? Is what Paul is saying. That's his defense. He says the best way to defend against lack of unity or rational disagreements is to love one another, to, to, to shower each other in love. So that's his example. But then, of course, Paul doesn't just stay with his own example. He's going to come back to his example at the end. And it's really important. His own example at the end is vital, so don't fall asleep before then. <laughs> the end is all about gifts. And we've got this strange gift economy going on in our culture as well, where you've invited me for lunch, so I have to invite you for lunch at some point. At least I know if I've gone to your home for a meal, then at some point I need to invite you back. At least that's what it's like with my neighbors where we live. No one wants to invite each other for lunch because then I'll have to ask you back. So the gift economy, Paul is going to give us an illustration of that in a minute. But so bookends, example. But in the middle, like a good minister, he's got some rebukes. He's got some imperatives. He's got some do this. You've got to do this. And so what are some of the things that he says? He says, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Just rejoice. Just fill your mind, fill your heart with joy in the Lord. In fact, he's so passionate about it. He doesn't say much more about it than verse 4. Just rejoice in the Lord again, I'll say rejoice. He really wants to bring it across. You've got to be happy in the Lord. And then let your reasonable gentleness be known to everybody. Because the Lord is at hand. You see that language? The Lord is coming. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. And there's the rebuke. I want you, Philippians, not just to love one another and speak of it and rejoice in the Lord. But I want you to pray and to plead to the Lord. I want you to pray and to plead. He says, look, let everything that's going on in your life be made known to God in prayer and in pleas. There's nothing in your life that you should hide away from God. He says the way a Christian lives is through prayer and petition. And I'll tell you a little story yesterday. Now, Charles, I don't know if you're listening, but he saw it happen. I crawled in underneath my old Mercedes-Benz yesterday morning at 11 o'clock. And I have a rusty bolt that I have to get loose in order to fix the, the sagging rear end. And I was down there and I, and I rounded the bolt completely so that I put a spanner on it and it just... It's, oh man, I don't know what to do. So I take a file and I file the two edges of this bolt straight. And I take a hammer and I hammer the spanner onto these two edges and I think, oh, it doesn't work. I go and get Stefani's hair dryer. And I make it as hot as I possibly can. And by this time, Charles, my neighbor, is working in his car next to me. And we're chatting constantly, chatting constantly. And I'm there, and I'm, I'm doing it again, I'm doing it again. And I decide, whilst I'm under this car, I don't my two feet sticking out. I decide, I'm on my back. I'm going to pray to the Lord that he helps me. Because if I can't get this bolt off, a tow truck has to come and pick up this car. It will cost me a hundred pounds to take it somewhere. And the guy who's going to fix it will charge me a hundred pounds just to look at it. And no, so I pray. 
and then I wiggle, 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 and I push. In fact, I'm quite sore today because and I push, and it comes loose. And the moment it comes loose, you know what's happened? What am I doing underneath the car? I'm lying like this on my back. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I start singing. Forgetting that there's anyone around me. I'm just so thankful. And I'm crawling out of this car. And as I come out, I'm going to flush because there's Charles. <laughs> he says, oh, so you've got it loose then. <laughs> and what I thought about when that thing happened was, guys, girls, children, we are not above praying about any and everything that happens in our lives. Come on. The way that Paul wants us to live, he says, you await your Savior from heaven. If that is going to be true, you direct all your desires to Him, and your whole life is aligned to Him. Praise Him. Rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but, but make it known. Make your requests known to God. And then He promises this peace. So, I talked about the solution. The problem is disunity. The solution is follow Paul's example, rejoice in the Lord, pray constantly. But now it gets to another little rebuke, which is not so obvious. And it's in verse 8. It's a bit all the way down, verse 8 to 9. I struggle to make sense of it. I made some notes on it that I hope will help me. But what it says there is essentially I want to put it under the heading of pray and play. Pray to God. Make your request known to God in prayer. Now, go play. Go play. Why do I say that? Let's read it and you'll see. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So it's still all about peace. How do you get peace? He says the way to get peace is yes to follow his example and to pray and is to follow his example pray and play why do i say play well he gives us a whole list and he tells us what to do with this list he says in verse 9 and uh, no, verse 8 at the end if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things what does it mean to think about this we'll look at the list in a minute but he says think about these things thinking oh my goodness i wrote down what thinking is as it's written in this passage thinking is a reason about think about in a detailed and logical manner and keep mental record of it remember it he says i want you here's a list of things and i want you to think about these things i want you to dwell on these things i want you to remember these things what are those things well, those things sound quite good at the beginning whatever is true well, that makes sense. It's in the Bible. God is the God of truth. So we immediately think of religious categories. It's about the truth of God, what isn't false. Whatever is honorable, honorable, again, are the things that gives praise to God, that are glorious and holy, things that our culture would recognize as honorable, but more specifically, the Bible recognizes as honorable. Whatever is just, the word there is righteous. Whatever is righteous. And God gives us in His Ten Commandments the Ten Words that tells us what is right and what is wrong. Whatever is righteous, put your minds on those things. Whatever is pure, the word holy. Whatever is holy like God, put your mind on those things. So all of this seems like church language up to this point. Put your mind on the Bible. Put your mind on, on holy things. Put your mind on righteous things, the moral ethics of Christians and so on. But then a surprise. Whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, <laughs> lovely. What a strange word to use. Whatever is lovely. And whatever is commendable. He feels that for the last two words, he needs to give an explanation so the sentence carries on. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, that extrapolates those two words, whatever is lovely and whatever is, is, is um, commendable. He says, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. And I've read different commentaries on that, and it sounds to me like people are saying, these are the things that our culture recognizes as excellent and as beautiful as lovely. And you walk around big cities and you might come across a, a royal, uh, royal opera house and you might see that culture and our society has lifted up uh, that music as something that is excellent and admirable and beautiful and lovely. And you'll see the same in architecture as we see it around us. People lift that up. People have the good art as you go to the National Portrait Gallery. Say, look at these are beautiful, excellent, wonderful things. Set your mind on those things. And you'll walk down the street and you'll see people pouring into restaurants where they're enjoying good food. And people present them in a beautiful way. And you see people lifting up glasses of wine as they smell it. Oh, this is a, this is a really excellent uh, vintage, uh, a fantastic wine to go with this particular food. People are lifting up these beautiful and good things. And you see people going out for a walk. And they're stopping, they've got binoculars on, and they're looking at birds, and they're just taking in the beauty of nature. And you see other people uh, on the ocean, surfing or swimming, enjoying what they're doing there. Can you see what's going on? The Lord is saying to us, I want you to pray, make your, your pleads and your needs known to God, but I also want you to go out and play in the world that the Lord has made, because there is much in this world that is excellent and commendable and beautiful and lovely. And you need to go and see this. Uh, I want to recommend an article that I've only read this morning, but I enjoyed it. A friend of mine sent it to me. It looks quite scary. I'm going to lift it up. Confessions of a former Sabbath breaker. Dun, dun, dun. You know, it sounds like... It's Eugene Peterson, and he deliberately had pictures taken like a wanted man at the top there. And really what, he, what, he, what he's saying is, he's talking about the Lord's Day, like the bunting I've just said. It's not his illustration, but it's, he's saying every Lord's Day sort of calibrates us again to say, yes, your life should be about prayer, but your life should also be about play. The, the fellowship that you might have today on this Lord's Day, can you make sure that it is something that is really refreshing, it's something that brings you closer to God, uh, to, to nature, to fellow believers. Something that gives you leisure. The leisure of contemplation is what Eugene Peterson talks about. And he gives us a little example. He said uh, he had um, the best year of his life was actually the, the year that he was most encouraged in his sin. The church grew tremendously that year. And his wife said to him, and the whole session said to him, we're going to give you a bonus this year because the church grew so much. Everyone was really happy with his work, his ministry. But inside, Eugene knew what he was doing. He was just working all hours of the day. He was never resting. He was breaking the fourth commandment constantly, every Lord's Day, just working, working, working. He was driving the whole church forward into breaking the commandment to rest. Uh, and he was the main slave driver. So he said he started taking Mondays, not off, and and that's what I'm intending to do. But as a Sabbath, 
And so what is it that he would do on a Monday? He said, my wife and I would stand up in the morning, we'll make a vow of silence until lunchtime. They were elderly, retired at this point, and so their children went in the house, and they would just walk. They would go for long walks, winter or summer, uh, until lunchtime, and they would not talk. They would just walk and take in and contemplate and stop to pray and consider. And then at lunchtime, they will eat together, and then they will begin their afternoon by singing songs, worship songs that they knew, just singing them together. And they would sing, and they would pray, and they would pray for one another, and they would read together. And, and he said, he, he became addicted to this day after a short while, because he's reclaimed something of what it means to be human. So, he said, we've got a language like, time is money. No, he said, time is a gift. We go out to kill time when there's little time left, uh, when we've got a little bit of time left. He says, no, we can't kill time. Time is the gift that the Lord has given us to, to play in the world that he has made. And so Paul is saying here, please, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, reason about, investigate these things. And the peace of God will be with you. So that is Paul's remedy for this disunity, this anxiety and the lack of peace. Is wait for Jesus, pray, wait for Jesus, follow Paul's example, love one another, pray and play. Now I'll close with the last bit. Is that how long I've been going on? Are you still here? Not everyone is here. Some. <laughs> I'll carry on because this is vital for you to see and I'll try and summarize this as best I can. It's, it's very strange this whole last bit that he speaks of gifts and giving. Did you see that? It is very strange. He talks about giving as... Um, just see the language. You'll see what I mean. Verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's concerned. They've given him money. That's what they've done. The church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus... He was in jail, and they arrived with a bag of money. They said, here's a gift to you. Boom. They gave him the, the gift. With that gift, he would buy food for himself. He would look after himself whilst he's in jail. It's a great gift. It's not the first time they've done it. He loves them because they've done that. Now, what you need to understand in the Greco-Roman world, if someone gave you a gift, you immediately incurred a debt. Is that different now to us? You know, I don't know if that's different now. Do I feel a debt if you've invited me for lunch to your house and I sit around your table, I have a great time, and I think, oh, check the food, okay, well, oh, they've come all out, Yeesh. okay, Ooh, I don't think I can afford inviting them back. There's many of them, I mean, I'm telling you, one, two, three, four, five, six, I mean, Ooh, I, I'm feeding them, they're feeding me, how's this going to work? And we, we incur this debt economy. That was what the Greco-Roman world functioned on. That was the relationship between a benefactor and a beneficiary, a patron and a receiver. The patron gives a gift to Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, later on. He had rich patrons, but then they required of him, yeah, we give you gifts. These aren't gifts. These are wages, mate. We want you to make music for us in our court according to our preferences. And the same gift relationship was happening in the Greek world. People gave gifts to people that they followed in order that these people that they followed would in turn serve them in other ways. And Paul is radically, Christianity is radically undermining this subtle power structure that's at play. Now, I'll put in brackets here, Panama Papers. 
I think what we'll find out as people dig through this recent controversy, that many of the people in political power in our society were, uh, were owing some rich benefactors higher up that were hiding money through conspiracy and therefore had to bury truths and things. I'm merely suggesting that. I'm not sure, of course, but the history has done this a thousand times in the past, where, where people in power have rich benefactors and are bending them arm, their arms by giving money to their political causes. The Christian power structure does not work like that, and that's what Paul is trying to undermine here. He's deliberately saying, you've given me a gift. You know what I'm doing with this gift? I'm calling this gift a fragrant sacrifice to God. That's what he calls the gift. He, he doesn't say to you, give me a th thank you so much for the money. That was a kind gift to you. He says, no, no, I'm not thanking you for the gift. I'm thanking God for you who gave me the gift. <laughs> He's constantly subverting the, the power structure that they most likely subconsciously are trying to impose on Paul. And if you're not a Christian, this should give you a little bit of a wake-up call. You say, hang on, so Christianity, are you saying, did not arise out of the well-known power structures that eat off one another, that history is littered with, it did not eat out of any of that. It was something that constantly, deliberately, and resolutely pushed power away and back to God, whom they were awaiting a Savior. Paul is the example of that. He's saying, he doesn't seek the gift in verse 17. Yes, he's received full payment, he's well supplied, and just so you know, Philippians, I'm well supplied when I have plenty or I've got nothing. I don't need you, is what he's saying. I've got Jesus. And he's told me the secret to be content in plenty or in... So thanks for the gift. I really appreciate it. It is, as he calls it, uh, a fragrant offering, verse 18. A sacrifice accepted becomes worship to God. Now, for me as a minister, that's quite helpful. If you come to visit my house, you'll see I've got a massive coffee machine. The biggest coffee machine you've seen in your life. It is like a rocket ship. In fact, it is called a rocket. That is its name. It was a gift. It was a gift from a mutual friend we all had. He gave me this gift. And as I looked at this gift, he gave our whole family this gift. As we looked at this gift, I realized they're about to leave to go to New Zealand. I cannot repay this gift. There's no chance for me to repay this very expensive gift. And that's not why he gave the gift. He gave the gift, I can say this because he's not here, so it's fine. I gave the gift, which we could receive as a family, and we could just turn it into a fragrant offering to God. And say, this was a gift given by a man whose heart was bursting with joy in the Lord. And he's going to miss us as a family. He wants to give us a gift by which we can remember them. And we can take that gift. But if I took that gift, and I said, oh my goodness, now I owe him. How do I repay this? I'm constantly looking online to see if I can send them a copy. I can't afford that machine. I can't ever repay. I, we, I can't keep up the gift economy. My whole life, as I stand before you, I'm gift economy, Christian gift economy 101. Every gift you've given to the church was your act of worship. Yes, the money by hook or by crook ended up in my pocket. You're paying me 30,000 pounds a year. You pay for the house that I live in. Your contributions have gone into my pocket in one way or another. But when it arrives in my door, I hope that you have said, I have given this as a sacrifice to the Lord. I've given this as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. I am responding as a giver to what the Lord has given to me. That's, that's vital. And that's why we give as a church. If we don't do that, we will inebriate the culture of the world. 
kind of performance business going on, and we'll just mimic badly the world's power structures. And we will become a place of anxiety, a place of competition, a place of fearfulness. We're not that. We're a place of sacrifice and worship to the Lord. The gospel. Jesus Christ himself is the gift. And perhaps you remember John 4. Jesus is at the well in Samaria. And Jesus said to the lady, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you a Jew ask me for a drink? I'm a woman of Samaria. And Jesus has answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you have asked him and he would have given you living water. She doesn't really want the living water because she knows if I take the living water, I have to repay the living water with my life. And so she constantly tries to divert the conversation. And Jesus says to her, no, no, stop diverting. I'm the living water. If you want this free gift, it is exactly that. It is a free gift. All you need to take it is thirst. All you need for it, all that you need to do in repayment of it ever, is just to the right to the Romans 5. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Why? Because he says, the free gift of Jesus Christ is an abundant gift of grace through Jesus. Abundant gift of grace. See, that is the economy of the Christian gospel. It's the freeness of it all. The I can't repayness of it all. That I have just received, I've been blessed, I've just basking in all that is given to me. And every inclination to think, I'll repay, I've not repaid well, I'm, I'm falling short. How do I pick up? Oh, I feel anxious, I feel insecure, I, I lack peace. That is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is, He just loved me. And He just poured out these abundant gifts on me. I don't want to take it because then I have to repay it. Or I don't want to take it because it's too good to be true, so I leave it on the table. But the point is, he's still giving it completely freely, without strings attached, for you to take, and when you take it, it will satisfy you. It will satisfy you. The freeness of it will satisfy you. And then a life of peace, without anxiety, will start to flow through you. These living waters that he spoke of will start to rush through you. And let your shoulders drop and say, wow, he's just blessed me. It's just a gift. True, it's really just a gift with no strings attached. Then it would lead to obedience. It would lead to thankfulness. But only once you've rested in the gift. So let's pray about that and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, this is a, a glorious letter. It is fantastic. It's the end of it now and we are so thankful for it. We're thankful, Father, for the tone of this letter. It's full of love. It's full of endearment. It's full of personal uh, anecdotes and relationships that's brought out into the spotlight. We get a taste, a flavor of the type of relationship that existed between Paul and the church. And that's what we want in Canada Water Church, Father. Father, would you allow us to, to freely tell each other that we love one another? Would you produce this fruit in us in a church where we give gifts to one another without expecting a return? Would we receive these gifts without fearing that we have to pay it back? Would you fill us with a, a freedom that the gospel brings, a liberation that comes from the freeness of it all? And would that make us beautiful to the whole world watching us? Would we be like bunting being held up Sunday after Sunday by the free gift of grace? That the world will see this is where the party is. This is where real mature fun is. 
This is where people are dwelling in the richness of relationship, in the richness of friendship, in the richness of, of, uh, of, of nature. This is where it's at. Now, so we ask, Father, make us beautiful. Make us beautiful for the sake of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.